Hi, I'm Samantha B. Welcome to my podcast, Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. Now, like any late night host, I love to have a captive audience, but coronavirus has changed the meaning of that, and everyone's doing their part to keep the country moving. I mean, like, except for people who refuse to wear masks. Some people are 3D printing face shields, others donating blood. Me, I'm starting a podcast. Oh, selfless. Yes. Full Release is just that, a place where once a week I'm going to talk to someone who I really want to talk to, and because of the pandemic and being stuck at home, they actually have the time to talk to me. I'm going to get their perspective on working and living in turbulent times, and hopefully we'll offer each other a brief respite from doing dishes. Just because we're stuck inside doesn't mean we can't escape for a little. I'm joined by my producers, Adam Howard and Svia Baron reinstein I haven't seen them in person for over two months, but I used to really like working at the office with them. I like assume that they look the same, but Svia probably has more hair coming out of her head, and I assume that Adam has more hair coming out of his face. Is that true? Is that... Yes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I feel like that's like letting our audience know that I'm very bald. In a very <laughs> polite way, <laughs> which I appreciate. Oh, my legs have more hair coming out of them. Yeah, I got my first two gray hairs over what? this quarantine. Yeah, oh it's really God. horrifying. They're right <laughs> at the front of my hair, and it's really uh, awful when I see them every morning. Tragically located at the front, where I everyone know. can see them, framed by yep. worry. <laughs> Are you even 30 yet? No, I'm not. Thank you. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I'm just going gray really early. <laughs> Uh, I'm. Don't worry. I'm sure the world's going to get a lot better, and that will reverse its course. Yeah. This is our first podcast. Are you excited? Yeah, yeah. I'm nervous and excited. <laughs> okay. It, it might be why I have the two grays now, but I think it'll be <laughs> worth it. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm super excited to talk to our first guest today. We are talking to Soledad O'Brien. I love her so much. I can't wait to talk to her. Yeah. No, I think she's always was always like a very cool presence when she was cool. in cable news, but now that she's left that world and gone to social media, it's kind of like Soledad unleashed and yes. I'm here for it. I know. All bets are off now. I check her Twitter every day religiously. I think she says what everyone wishes they could say. Yes. I love a woman unleashed. I truly do. So I'm very appreciative that she agreed to come with us on this maiden voyage. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away because we'll be right back. But also, it's still very dangerous to go outside. Don't do that. Joining me today is broadcasting icon and Twitter boss lady, Soledad O'Brien. You know Soledad from her many years at places like NBC News and CNN, where she created the terrific and timely Black in America and Latino in America series. And most recently, you know her from social media, where she holds her peers accountable and maybe is going to save the integrity of journalism all by herself. She anchors and produces the Hearst Television political magazine program, Matter of Fact, with Soledad O'Brien, and just launched her own podcast, too which I think makes us sisters. Her podcast, Murder on the Towpath, is an eight-part true crime series about the unsolved murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer and is available on Luminary. Her coronavirus special, Outbreak, the first response, airs the same day as we're filming this, and I guess probably by the time you're listening to it, it will have won numerous awards and accolades. Right now, we're doing this via Zoom. We're miles apart, but we're definitely about to become best friends. She's also now a member of the board of directors for the Peabody Awards. Oh my gosh, there's so much to say. She's a very busy lady. 
Thanks for having me. I feel like you're right here in the room next to me, so we'll act accordingly. And you can swear as much as you want on this podcast. Thank you. I do swear a lot. I'm trying to be better. It embarrasses my children. They're really, it's funny. I've really talked them out of swearing because I swear, which I maybe net positive. It's a net positive. It's like when you, when you're a kid and you try a cigarette and then your parents make you smoke a whole pack of cigarettes because my children are the exact same way. They think swearing is disgusting and that I'm a very vile person. Yes. yes. And that means you've done motherhood right. I did it right. I was a terrible example for them. Okay. I want to say that your presence on social media is like oxygen to me. Really? I, some days I feel like I'm losing it. Like I feel no. like I'm shouting into the wind and I become that lady you see in New York City who's got the two red cheeks and she's come, you know, and she's talking to people, but it's, you know. No, we are, we are out there listening to you. And I want to say like, just from the bottom of my heart that I really appreciate that you take every possible opportunity to remind people that Melania Trump is a birther. Well, you know, what's interesting in all seriousness, anyone else doing that would go forward and say, I want to apologize. I said some things I didn't realize. I didn't understand right. that that was racist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I know better. And yet this idea that the media moves on from that, when when there's been no apology, it's an incredibly racist thing to be a birther. Yes. People yes. do documentaries on her and they kind of leave that out or, or quote her and they leave it out. So, you know, it just becomes very frustrating to me. So, yes, I do my constant reminders of uh, Melania is a birther and that video is easy to find online. Easy to find. And I really do appreciate that. Okay. Your Black in America series could have come out yesterday and it would have been just as topical as it was when you first released it. In fact, I've been watching, you know, I rewatched it, of course. I watched it when it came out. I rewatched it. And then I rewatched interviews of you when you took it on the road and it was like it was happening in this very moment. So why are we still asking the same questions and having the same conversations now? Do you think that people are actually going to listen this time? I think that there is something different. And I think it's different for a host of reasons. Um, One, coronavirus has made people just home. There's no, oh, it's Monday, I've got to go into work, everything moves forward. Two, there is a ton of young people involved in these conversations. And because of that, I've actually found that many corporations are trying to figure out, at the very least, what do we Uh say? What's the hashtag? What do we post? What's our point of view? But I think there's a number that have gone farther than that. And they're trying to figure out... Um, you know, we keep talking about this mission mm-hmm. statement and our values and these things we care about. And clearly, now's the opportunity to to do something. Part of that, I think, is a leadership vacuum, right? They clearly, no one's leading politically. And so there have been a number of organizations who do far more than just hashtag, we support you, hashtag, stay safe, right? They're really, and many who don't, but there's been, I think, just a lot of conversations about, okay, if we really care about these issues, how do we measure them? How do we think about tangible change? What is tangible change? And I think that feels a little bit different than how it has felt in the past, where historically, right, in the 50s, maybe 60s, it was hire a black person. In the you know, 70s, it was promote some women. But now there's a sense of we really want to understand where the power is and what the opportunity is and how people are moving through the system. The system might be an industry or might be a particular organization. So that feels different. But I don't know that you'd get there if you didn't have George Floyd plus Amy Cooper plus Ahmaud Aubrey plus Breonna Taylor plus coronavirus, right? It's been this weird mix of all of these things. 
that have made people say this is a different time. I've had about, I would say, guessing, 20 guys, 40-plus-year-old white dudes who will DM me and say, this is the first time. I mean, I always thought when someone was stopped by the cops, they'd probably done something wrong, right? Like maybe they didn't deserve what they got completely, but they'd done something wrong. The people just don't get stopped by the police for no reason at all. Black people know people get stopped all the time. But white people, these are all white guys. And I think that like they are, they have come around on this idea like, wow, maybe there is a system that's a problem. And getting people to understand systemic racism is really a hard thing. It's complicated. Well, you've spoken in numerous interviews about just introducing the phrase white privilege into meetings in the early 2000s and how, what a foreign <laughs> concept that was to like, you know, I think it's maybe it took 12 years for people to actually just put that in their minds and have that be I something. actually don't like that phrase. You know why? Because you often interview people who are middle class or mm -hmm. working class or whatever, and they don't feel privileged. Right. So someone says white privilege and it just feels like, oh, what's my privilege? And so I always thought there should be a better phrase because it doesn't really explain kind of the added benefit you get just by people not assuming you're a suspect, by people assuming you're competent in your job, by people thinking that you sort of can do anything you move through space in. And so it, privilege, I think, if you're white and you're poor, doesn't seem like it works. However, there are advantages you get, even if you are poor, that you have because of the color of your skin. So I don't know that there's a, a, a good um, description of it. And in schools where my kids went to school, they used to go to school in New York City, often the, the middle schools and the high schools would do these conversations. And it really felt to me like the goal was guilting the white students. <laughs> and you're like, I, really, I mean, truly, right? Like, oh, I've got white privilege and I'm guilty. And I don't think that's particularly productive. I think it's how do we make sure that your color of your skin is irrelevant. I don't want anybody feel guilty is a terrible feeling. I hate feeling guilty about things. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I want them to help move the needle to making things more, more just and fair and equitable for people. I do feel like generationally too, that what, like I feel that generationally the, it feels different to me because I'm, oh, I'm 50 years old now. And I do notice even in my own office that the young people, like the 20 year olds in my office are like, do change now, like right now. You make yeah, change they're, they're, literally they're, right now. No, they are not patient people, which no, is great. Right? It is great. It is very, it is very needed. And it is, but it is jarring generationally to people who are like, what? It, like right now? And they're like, right. actually, like, yes. Let's write a report. Then we should do a study. Then we should oversee <laughs> that study. Uh, probably a committee would be a good a idea. A committee would be From so great. From that committee, recommendations, recommendations that I think like a two to three year window of how we <laughs> implement them, right? That's the classic way that, I mean, I'm 53, the classic way you think about change. And they're like, yeah, by Friday, we need this or we're walking out. <laughs> I, I love it. I kind of love it. Yeah, it's really great. Okay. Does having a, a, a racist president make you feel like you would approach, like how would, differently would you approach Black in America if you were launching it right now? I don't know that you would approach it differently because I think the key, Obama wasn't in, in Black in America mm -hmm. at all. And I don't think, I don't think you can do a documentary that's going to be very timely and focus on sort of one person. Mm -hmm. He motivates and brings out and encourages and I think gives affirmation to white supremacists. But these are things that have been around well before President Trump, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't think that, you know, by, by making 
centering it on him, I think would actually be a bit of a cop-out. It's not. It's worse than that. It's worse than that, right? It's, it's actually that there's a very large number of people who really are challenged around race. And right now, I think they're, they overlap with many in the GOP, and they overlap with many who, who like the direction President Trump is going. So it's almost a cop-out to say it's just one person. You are your own boss. You started Starfish Media. I have four children. I have some. You're not, not one, you're not your own. You're not, I'm not a in puppy. Every, I'm not my own boss. Not in every area of your life. <laughs> Certainly. That feels so free to me. That must be fucking amazing, actually. It is fun and terrifying, but fun. You know, I want to talk about the restrictions that are placed on journalists who have to answer not only to a boss, but to an entire corporation. You know, with all of its weight, a corporation that has the power to change ideas, to modify them, to modulate the tone, to kill the idea, to, you know. I never found that though. When I was a reporter, the, the pressure didn't come from someone in the front office saying, Soledad, I feel the focus of your piece should be this. It's much more, in a way it's worse because you buy into it. So one thing we used to do in local news was to shoot the perp walk. And it was almost this, I mean, it was never a, a real deal, but somehow the police would bring somebody out and walk sure. them around, right? And usually it was someone who had already been arraigned or already was incarcerated. So like they'd have to take them out. I mean, it wasn't that you'd happen to catch them because you'd know the time and you'd stand in this spot and you'd be able to get the perp right. walk. What was amazing as a reporter for the perp walk was it lasted between nine and 11 seconds, right? Which meant I had my opening shot. Right. Jonathan Martin Smith was arrested today, on, right? And so thank you. Oh, my goodness. So it's much more insidious because you're now part of a system, right, that takes this guy who's not been found guilty of anything, and you're working with the police mm -hmm. to create this narrative. And it really took me a long time before I even realized that that, I was, that, that was sure. a thing. I, I never thought about it. I think much more often journalists, you just don't, it doesn't work that someone calls you and says, do it this way, right. really. It's that the whole mindset is around what your point of view of stories are. Police are always right. They're going to tell you. They're going to come out first and shape the narrative. And we all are like, uh-huh, hold on, let me wait. And, and what's the name of the suspect? And who are you looking at? How sure. did it go down? I think that's changing. But for a long time, I mean, this is my 31st year in TV news. Like, that's how it was. And it wasn't because the front office was telling sure. you to do that. Uh, Jonathan Carl, who's a, I think he's a good reporter and he, he covers the White House. I think he might be the White House Correspondent Association president now. He just wrote a book and it's called Front Row at the Trump Show. Right. I'm like, wow, you've, you've done that to yourself. No one told you you had to name your book Front Row, which is, you know, where he gets in the journalist yeah. to sit at the Trump Show. You, you've just called your entire job, which is one of the most important, prestigious jobs you can have in journalism, reporting at the Trump right. Show. No one made him do that. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe his publisher thought it was a, a great title. But when I see stuff like that, I think, God, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. There are certainly like social media restrictions and things you can say and can't say. But I, I think actually a lot of journalists have a lot of power and ability to, you know, push back on what's happening in the newsroom, especially the ones who are, you know, bold-faced names who are in all those important meetings. Access is such a big deal. Like fear of losing your access to these voices and these opportunities to be in the room seems so, is, so, yeah. is very limiting, is very constricting. It makes people fear for their jobs in a, in a way that, you know, you wish a senator could be brave and you wish that a, well, multiple, you know, so many senators, you wish that they would step out. All of them. And say, like, basically <laughs> all of them and say what's true and right. 
but there is this feeling that they fear for their jobs and expect that job to go on forever. So there is, how do you, I guess when you are creating your own work and you're doing your own shows now, how do you upend those systems? Like how do you surprise yourself by the different choices that you make or what are you leaning into that is... You know, when I started my company, which was about seven years ago, my very first project was not a pleasant one to do. It turned out beautifully. And I was working with a guy who was amazingly talented, but it it was miserable. And I remember in that moment being completely overwhelmed as a CEO and trying to figure out you know, hiring and staffing and office space. But I was like, the one thing you get when you work for yourself is to not work with assholes. Like you get one one little tiny little <laughs> flower of joy. And you should, you know, like that one I can manage. I can't manage all this other stuff. And so at that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm just certain things I'm not going to do. I've always been amazed at how some of our elected officials are so afraid and so desperately want to hold on to their jobs because I know so many people who are so brave and have nothing, you know, comparatively nothing. So, yeah, I think my choices were only around, you know, I just want to make sure I'm doing what I want to do and that I'm, uh, that I'm, that it makes me happy. Like that it makes me, um, that this is like what I want to represent. And, and so I'm sure that there are things, you know, people who are like, "Mm, we won't work with her or people who I don't want to work with. And at some point that's okay. But I will say this, when I left CNN, I had saved a ton of money. It allowed me to immediately get an you know, office space in New York City and start a company, and we didn't even have to have you know be profitable right away, which is a big luxury, right? It's it's not so hard to be brave when you're like, if if it doesn't work out, my kids are still going to go to school, and we're going to eat dinner, and my apartment's not at risk, and I can go do ten other things. So. I never felt particularly brave about it. I just thought, well, if we're going to do this, then let's pick the people we want to work with and let's do the stuff we want to do and hope for the best. It doesn't always work out, you know. um, Like occasionally you could start a company with a no assholes policy and then an asshole sneaks in. (laughs) Yes, and then you you learn pretty quickly how to fire assholes. And by the way, (laughs) some people would give me that advice. I got great advice from people when I started my company, which was, you know, fire fast. Like it's very, very hard Maybe if you're a big giant corporation, you have a process so you can rehabilitate people and sort of be like, you're an asshole, but we're going to make you less of an asshole. And then we're going to one day make you not an asshole. For small companies like mine, we have 11 full-time okay. people. They just, people just have to go. You know, we have a no asshole policy and go with God. Wish you the best. It, well, it, fire fast was very good advice and fire fairly. Right. Like sit down and save it for everybody and just navigate your way out. That was really helpful. A guy who owned a half a billion dollar company went out to lunch with me and gave me that advice. And it was some of the best advice I got. I always tell people when they ask me for advice, I say, be a person people would want to work with twice. Yes. Which I think is also a, just a good tip and kind of that's covered in the no assholes policy. But if you're a person who people would think about again when they're setting something up somewhere else that's to me a great place to great place to be and look how people treat other people right i mean really the best especially if you're if you're an anchor you're running your own show right everyone's going to treat you amazingly well you know but it's it's really go and find out from the other people you know the people who get the door the people who deliver lunch Mm. the people who answer the phone like 
they're going to really tell you what that person is like. Many years ago, I had a job. I had torn my ACL when I was in college. And so my dad hired me for the summer. I don't even know if he was paying mm -hmm. me. He was a professor at SUNY Stony Brook, and he was looking for an assistant. And my job was to go and I could walk with my, even with the brace on. So I'd pick up the candidates to be his assistant and walk them to the interview and then walk them back. And the number of people who would badmouth my dad <gasps> to me. <What? laughs> As I was, you know, like, or, or the organization or the, you know, and you're just like, girl, you have no idea. This is so oh, crazy. Oh, my God. But, but those, you know, it really is. People like who have the inside scoop on things are the ones to talk to, not, you know, not people often right. won't be their real selves with you. Okay, let's talk about gatekeepers in journalism. I do want to talk about journalism a little bit more, if, if that's okay, because I do have a... I love journalism. I do, too. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I know... I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were pre-med. Like, you wanted to be a doctor, didn't yes, you? But no, yes, but not, you know, pre-med means okay. nothing. Like, I can... It sounds If you scratch yourself, me. I'd run and get bacitracin from your cabinet, and I'd put it on <laughs> and put a bandit on and be like, oh, I think I got you. <laughs> One time I was doing a shoot for NBC News, and we were shooting in a pen with a snow leopard, mm. and the snow leopard attacked my photographer. <gasps> And they have retractable claws, so you can't just pull out the claws. You have to wait for them to relax. What? He sunk his claws into the ankle oh. of my photographer, and we had to wait till his claws retracted out. Wow. And at that point, I said, I was pre-med. It looks pretty good to me. Let's just put some bacitracin <laughs> on it. And when we're done shooting, you should definitely get to a hospital, oh, which is what we did. So that's, that's, that's why I'm not a doctor today. <laughs> Okay, I love I love journalism. I mean, even as a kid, I was always watching documentaries. It's just a real it's just a real interest. So this is anyway. What I'm saying is, I'd love to pitch a show with you that is just media criticism. Yes, yes, it's so easy. It would we would literally people would be like, you're gonna need a six hour show. A six hour. It's show. so sad. And listen, and I don't think you I don't think you aim. Listen, a lot of people who fumble, mm -hmm. and I was one of them, when you're new and you're young and you don't get it, like, I get it. You you get to make mistakes mm -hmm. and you're going to have fails and it's embarrassing and never, ever, ever punch down, right. ever, right? But it's the people who have big platforms and who should know better. Well, what choices really do you struggle. think we would have made differently if the gatekeepers of journalism hadn't historically been white, male, Ivy League guys who all road crew together and like because <laughs> I feel like when I look at when I look at the television industry there this you know this kind of like comedy side of the television industry or scripted side so many of the business rivalries that exist in television at the upper levels today are really based on like college lacrosse rivalry. lacrosse rivalries from college yep. you know that yep. keeps going it just keeps going and going and going you know, so when we did Black in America, mm -hmm. I just remember the trepidation that the executives at CNN had. Someone literally said to me, so don't make it too black. The thing was called Black in America. <laughs> oh my but you know what? I had been around long enough to be like, I got you. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yes. I'll take and, good note. Uh, you know, which is always the right answer. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and so, right, the, the fear was always... And you see this a lot in different industries. If we have too many black people, the channel becomes black. If we tell too many stories, we're going to push away what we really value, right? Which is the white audience. Even though no one will really put it that way, that's clearly what they're saying. And what we found when we did Black in America was we grew our black audience tremendously. But we grew our white audience even bigger. It was amazing. 
And uh, and so I really I think we we've always tried to sort of highlight to people when you when you start telling other stories if they're well done and they're good stories you actually open up to bigger audiences not just Asian story and oh look at all the Asians who've come to to watch you know our uh, our movie it is great story and interesting and Asian story and wow everybody loves this story and it does really well I mean we see examples of that over and over and for some reason it doesn't seem to stick like you constantly need to prove it again and again and again and again and I I'm not sure why and I think if we had different gatekeepers people would just go for those things that do well and make money and and those things that do well and make money are very diverse things I mean listen I get it. it's a business you need to do well and make money so I think the gatekeepers often fall back on this thing of what makes them comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but I just don't think we should do so many Asian stories, right? Because then doesn't it, you know, so, okay, that was good. We should do that one. Maybe do a, another version of that one, but, but come back to what we are is this over here. And so I think that's really what the gatekeepers do. They, they, they limit, they limit ideas. Um, I, I've just... I was always surprised. We did a doc once called um, The Women of Ground Zero, which looked at rescue workers at Ground Zero, 10-year anniversary of 9-11. And the, the craziness we had, because the number of people who would say, I think what you're saying is that women are more brave than men. And you're like, what does that even mean? That's not even a thing. Like, what is that? And it, it was so, people were so upset by this one-hour doc about really? women who were rescue workers, because they hadn't really existed. They existed as victims, but not as as you know, women were were working in every job mm-hmm. in in during nine eleven as rescuers, and finally I won the argument because I said, "Do you know how many dogs of nine eleven I've done? Like I've done a lot. Like it's one hour. What is wrong with you people?" But this idea of if we give this to you, mm-hmm. aren't we really stealing from us? And I think the gatekeepers mm. create that. You know, we're gonna just open it a little, but if we open it too much, then. This comes out of my pocket in some capacity, as opposed to looking at it like, listen, our pie is this, but I'm pretty confident the pie could be this if we just really thought differently about all these other people out there. It's a mindset that the the gatekeepers really set. We can have a big, big square pie. There's so much pie to go around. I love pie. I feel like I'm in a conflicted position because on the one hand, journalism and print journalism in particular is sacred and always kind of in danger of going extinct. And on the other hand, the New York Times seems to shoot itself in the foot almost weekly. How do we hold these papers of record to the highest standards while also acknowledging that to desert them could mean the end of them? As I always say, I am a double subscriber to the New York Times, and I probably retweet New York Times articles and correspondence more than anybody to a pretty big audience. And yet, I also criticize them, especially their political coverage is often just a complete hot mess. Um, They just haven't figured it out. They just don't know what to do in this new environment where, you know, the rule was always, again, the deference was the president speaks, it then becomes newsworthy, and you should quote it. But when the president is consistently lying, Mm -hmm. how do you handle that? And there's not really been very good leadership to have like a, okay, we have to have a little come to Jesus here about how do we think about this new reality that we're Mm -hmm. in. And that, I think, has been very disappointing. So, yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. It's hard because you want journalists and journalism to survive. And there are, you know, the New York Times is amazing. I, I love the New York Times because it just has the real estate sure. section is fab- fabulous and fun and incredible, everything. But politically, 
their headline writers, I want to take them all out for drinks and just be like, guys, I think it's mostly guys. I don't know. I'm right. making that up because I don't know them. But like, can we just, what, talk to me. Did you hate your mother? Like, what's going on that we're psychologically struggling with so we can just get onto good, normal headlines? Right. They do a lot of normalization and you can see it. You'll watch a press conference and then you read the, then you read the sort of reporting on it and it's, it's off. They really don't know how to deal with social media. They're so messy. They're on so the messy. So they just elevate things that are inaccurate and, and pure lies. And then the headlines every week or so are just a complete mess. And, you know, as much as I know correspondents don't write their own headlines, I get a lot of these. Every time I say something about a headline, I get a lot of it. You don't understand. I'm like, no, I really do. I don't write the chirons for my show. But let me tell you, if someone fucked up my chirons enough times, yes. I'd be sitting down with them saying, like, we need to fix this or we need to, this person needs to go away, right? Like, you can't get it wrong all the time. You can't both talk about being the paper of record and how important you are and also continually screw things up. It's really sad. And I think sadder for me is that the, sometimes the correspondents themselves, and maybe they just don't do it publicly because they want to keep their jobs, but they just don't stand up and sort of say like, yes, this needs to be better for, for journalism generally. I do really miss the public editor. I really miss have that the Times doesn't have a public editor anymore. I think that's really, I think that's a... That's why I love Margaret Sullivan, you know, because yeah. she's so, if you, if she's just so good and mm -hmm. she's so smart and she's such a great writer. Every time I read anything from Margaret, I'm like, oh, I want to be at Sully View. That's like, she's so good about that. Good, but they do. Good. They're desperately in need of a public editor. But And the fact that they don't have one speaks volumes, mm -hmm. right? It's just like now the fact that when a company does not say or respond to all that's unfolding, whether it's around coronavirus or around racial conflict, and they say nothing, they don't do anything, it's not just that they didn't do anything. It's like, oh, your silence really does speak volumes. And I think that the the, the fact that they really refuse to fix this speaks volumes. They're just very messy. But there's an arc. If you jump in at 6 a.m. and highlight a bad headline, yes. by 4 p.m., I can usually get them. <laughs> right. I can harass them into changing that headline. <laughs> but it takes like a solid 10 to probably 10 hours of like, boom, boom, Just boom. imagining them all waking up at home and just opening up your Twitter feed and going, oh, we're just in trouble. What do we do? I... Ugh. I retweet them a lot, too. I, I like the New York Times. I love a lot of their reporters. But yes, they should be better. Or, you know, they can just pay pay me to be the public editor. I'd be oh. happy to do it. You know what? I'm going to, really. I would lobby for that. that. <laughs> I know. That would be a terrible, it would no, just be well, a terrible job right now. Mm -mm. But it is very needed. And I do appreciate that you are always talking about providing context. Because often, especially in the social media feed, it does feel like stenography. Why is it so hard? Maggie Haberman is today's worst offender, so we'll name her. Uh, she's, I don't know her. She seems like a perfectly nice person. She's obviously a smart lady, but how is it so hard to talk about, to, to, to not quote the president saying that no one knew about Juneteenth? I myself have been dragged to a large number of Juneteenth celebrations in my mm -hmm. lifetime. You're literally elevating a complete lie. And you could just add a teeny tiny bit of context. This is not true. Juneteenth celebrations have been happening around the country for a long time. Black people know all right. about Juneteenth. I just don't understand why. And also, I listen, she can do whatever she wants on her social media feed, obviously, but it's very disappointing to want to um, consider yourself somebody who cares about the accuracy and the import of news and then do that. It's just sad, honestly. It's almost like, you know, kind of retweeting things that are lies or things that the president says. It's almost like 
it from from my world writing out a joke that's meant to be delivered sarcastically you know without any context for that it doesn't make any sense and people read it one way when it really should be read completely completely differently like it should be read in a wry tone and it just doesn't work right. it's just kind of a failure when they when you write out jokes do you put like little parentheses wry tone <laughs> i just feel no, those I'm i feel those like, parentheses do you, do, do people do that I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. I just feel right all the time. <laughs> maybe <there's, laughs> maybe to, a little asterisk on either side, just in case. Right. <laughs> just in right. case I'm obtuse, <laughs> feeling particularly obtuse that day. Um, what, like imagine, sometimes I fantasize about a world in which we had like a really robustly financed public media. Because I do mm. come from Canada and that, that, that paid model of journalism is very different there. I mean, that right. exists there, but there is a more, and like it's very unwelcome for some people. Lots of people think that our public media in Canada is terrible, but it is always there kind of bubbling under the surface as a, you know, as a bastion of journalism to some extent. And I, we have that here, but people don't watch it. So what I'm saying is, going back to my pitch, is that you and I do a public media show together i just want to sit in the room while you pitch that to people so here's what i'm thinking public media we just rip everybody we just rip all the corporations beholden to no one so this is a few years down the road for me <laughs> but public corporations are beholden to people right that you just true. need to leverage yes. the people they do not like bad press they do not, they have a bunch of black employees inside of those corporations who are looking for every single moment to be able to say, here's what we should do to respond. So I think, you know, corporations, you've never seen corporations respond faster than when the Amy Cooper of the day, whoever that is, right? They, here's the arc. It happens, tearful presser within 24 to 48 hours. Then right after that, XYZ company says, so-and-so does not reflect not the reflect values of our organization. Our values. <laughs> it goes like that all the time. So I think corporations are actually very easily pressured if they feel like there's going to be some kind of a, a backlash or a pushback from inside the company as well. How should we go about covering Joe Biden? This to me is a very is very complicated because we realize that he's you know a pretty flawed candidate, uh, a deeply flawed candidate actually, but when you understand that the alternative is the worst person in the world. I feel like journalistic outlets are really stuck right now between not wanting to tear down this candidate who has potential to upend the election and change the tide of history. I think that we're gonna see a really complicated approach to covering Joe Biden in the next couple of months. I think it should just be fair. I think one of the problems is that Early on, media was very charmed by Trump, right? They loved mm -hmm. the idea of having Trump on their air. And so it, yeah. it, it boosted ratings. Listen, he's a good marketer, probably the only thing he does well. And so I, I think that, you know, I would just argue, just don't be complicit in elevating somebody, right? right? I mean, I don't think they, they I, I don't think anybody's ever been like, book Joe Biden, that'll get us the biggest ratings of the day. Just cover him fairly. And also, as journalists should do in any coverage, Make sure there's enough people in the room who can say, is this fair? Would we do, is this misogynistic? Is this tone appropriate? Are we really questioning ourselves when it, you know, and are we pushing back hard on him? Joe Biden wasn't my candidate. I mean, he seems like a perfectly sure. nice guy. Every so often I'd run into him on the Ocella. Uh, so I, I don't know the guy, but I, I do think he should be held accountable. It's just as everybody else, but in a way that's, 
that's fair. I don't think people quote tweet him mm -hmm. as much as they quote tweet the president who's lying. And I think that if Joe Biden said something that was a complete, utter fabrication that we would all say, well, that's obviously just bullshit lie. Right. The media wouldn't just quote tweet him, right? They'd say Joe Biden lying about blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, because that's how you treat normal people. So yeah, it's back to access. I think it should just be, I think it should just be fair. The challenge that they're having is that you do need access. You have a White House that will retaliate. The other day, that story about the president moving all the chairs in, and then the White House correspondents just sit there. Right. Like, I mean, it's just so sad. Like, I, it actually kind of broke my heart. Like, wow, you wouldn't even think to each of, if you know, if you also, each of you just moved three feet, just move your chair, right? And, the, and you realize, like, you can't even move your chair to protect your health and not even your health. Mm-hmm your family members, your grandma who might come by to visit. Like, you just can't manage to do it because you're, I think they're afraid. I really think that they are afraid of pissing off this president. And for a host of reasons, main one probably access, because you don't really have your job if you can't walk through the White House gates. So I think that's just really sad. And I don't think people are fearful of Joe Biden. Uh, mm -hmm. So I hope that they just cover him and cover everybody fairly. I really do hope that we can avoid those kind of false equivalencies that really plagued Hillary Clinton's campaign. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, I forget that we have an election coming up. But it's interesting. I think a lot of the Hillary Clinton coverage was just so misogynistic like people yes. just hate and listen i get it you know i've had sure. many an argument with the hillary clinton team about questions and interviews and things like that mm -hmm. I, I totally understand again you know deb zero opinion on her as a human being seems like a perfectly nice lady but the idea that you know that there was no one in the room to say i think the way this is framed is misogynistic right, right. i just like i think and in in many rooms it's just weird that there's no one who's counting articles and saying, guys, I'm looking at how this is laid out and it just seems unfair and biased to me. I think the media does a very bad job of really um, doing what they would do if they were covering that story somewhere else. Mm -hmm. God forbid the media decided to come in and do a, a look at the racial diversity of my team. They'd be going through my records and, and looking at every word everybody had ever said, but they don't do that to themselves. They, they don't really hold themselves accountable. And so I think we see those failures daily. Hey, I got to squeeze another break in here. But when we get back, I want your thoughts on other stuff. Are you in an age of gives no fucks? Because when I turned 45... You know, I, I never thought of it as I didn't give a fuck about something. Because I do. I feel like I feel very deeply about yes. a lot of things. But I stopped worrying so much about what people thought yes. of me. Right? So as long as I was doing something that was true to me, then I was okay with it. And if I have one dear friend, and that's good. Like, I have a best friend. She's great. She, I also made her become the godmother of all my children, right? Like, so she's doing, she's doing quadruple all. duty yeah. on that front. But like, I, I don't need six. I don't need 10. I don't need to be super popular. I don't, I don't need to be invited to things. I don't, I'm like, and I think that does for me came with age at some point. It was like, I'm, I actually don't need any more than I'm doing. I love the work I do, mm -hmm. but if stuff doesn't work out and it feels like their values are here and mine are here, I'm totally okay with go with God. Like it's, it's fine. So yeah, and I, and I think it's because I, I care a lot and not because I don't care. I just don't care about how people feel about me. And I think when I was younger, um, you 
you do. You want people to like yes. you and you have to figure out how to be likable. And so you spend a lot of time not responding to things because you don't want anybody to think yeah. you're one of those gals who over responds to things. It takes a long time to learn how to be okay with people not liking you. That's right. been right. It actually does take a while a to be like completely good. But also, again, I feel like I have money in the bank. Mm -hmm. I have a good reputation reporting wise. Mm -hmm. I can go to 10 other projects if I wanted to. So I think that that helps. I don't have to rely on, uh, because I, I kind of, you know, did a good job sort of saving a lot on the front end because I had the, the chance to. Um, so I don't know that I'd have the no fucks to give kind of mm -hmm. mindset if I actually, you know, had to keep this job and make sure right. that, you know, everybody likes me and I need to move up to here because I've got someone I'm sending to college. I guess I just think I do. I have liked getting older because I do think it made me care less about likability. Right. I try to be good to people, but it really, I just, I, I'm, I'm happy alone. I'm happy with the friends I have and doing what I do. And, and I, and, and, and that's fine. And so I think just getting older really does help with that. What advice would you give a young person thinking about getting into journalism today? Journalism's awesome. Yeah. I give lots of speeches at journalism uh -huh. schools and talks and commencement addresses. And I think the technology has gotten so small that it's you can afford it, right? You can now shoot something that could be on TV on your iPhone, which mm -hmm. you already have. And you can snap a little mic into that that we all had to run out and buy right. when, when coronavirus started. So it's it's amazing, right? There's not this barrier of cost into the field where it just was you know, prohibitively expensive to get any of the gear. And there's lots of opportunities. There are a lot of places to work. I think it's a lot about building skills. And also, if it doesn't work out, journalism and journalists have such great transferable skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, just being curious is a really great skill for pretty much any job you want to get into. Uh, so I actually think for people who want to be journalists, it's a very good time. It's a really interesting time. But it's hard. And it's, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, certainly print is shrinking. And if anybody thinks they're going to go in it to do this one thing, I mean, there was a day when it was like, oh, I'm going to be a print journalist. That doesn't exist. You, everyone's a multimedia, multi-content, sure. you know, and, and now there's great opportunities for your ideas to take root and not be in journalism, to be a show that's going to, you know, air on Amazon right. or something. So I, I do think it's a really good time in a lot of ways. It's a hard time because the, the, there's a big shift in the industry and a shift financially. And so it makes everything feel very destabilized. But when I was coming into journalism, like, you know, there was just a door. There's only right. really five organizations and, you know, you do this, this and this. And so many people didn't get access mm -hmm. and couldn't kind of ever get through the door, which was a challenge on its own. So, it, you know, as long as you're going in with your eyes open. Mm -hmm then I, I think it can be a really good career for people who want to write and want to tell stories. But I think if you feel like, oh, I'm going to go and be rich tomorrow oh. and just, you know, be on TV, um, that's probably unlikely. I feel like I remember watching a season. I mean, it was years and years ago watching one season of American Idol, I, you know, maybe a decade ago. And there was one contestant who was really terrible. I don't remember anything about his act but he was so upset that he didn't get chosen to move forward. And his when he was exiting the building, he was like, they were like, you're going to do great one day, Johnny. And he was like, but I want to be famous now. <laughs> <laughs> but now's the time when I have decided. 
<laughs> yep, yep. And Johnny probably has a really great Instagram channel, and he's making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year Good because he wraps him. sponsors around. You know, like Johnny's no fool. <laughs> yeah, you're Johnny probably right. It out. You don't have to wait. He has left us in the dust. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about your podcast. It sounds so yeah, interesting. My first one. I've been kind of trying to figure out a podcast, and this was mm -hmm. a great one to do. It's called Murder on the Towpath, okay. and it looks at the 1964 murder of a woman named Mary Pincho Meyer, who was very fancy, very wealthy, mm -hmm. and uh, and she uh, was a divorcee who had been married to a, a guy relatively high up at the CIA, mm -hmm. and she used to walk the towpath in Georgetown, which I never knew what a towpath was till I started walking it. It's just like a little path along the water. And it was weird to walk that towpath because it's actually quite wide open. Like, it's not where you would pick to murder someone because it's huh. the, you, the, the water on one side, the highway on the other side, lots of people around. You don't it's know where I would open. pick to murder someone. I, I like my murders well, out Well, a dark open. alley, right? <laughs> I mean, where no people are would be a good start. Like, who, you know, a dark alley. Everyone's getting murdered in dark alleys. Sure. That's why people don't like them. So uh, we wanted to look at her murder. Thought the other one was kind of a badass if they had the chance because normally she goes for a walk and when she's killed, a, a suspect is kind of rounded up in about 45 minutes. Black man who then is um, represented by a lawyer, civil rights attorney named W. Roundtree. And her path and everyone's backstory is fascinating. So in a lot of ways, it's a story of two women and kind of all the limitations to women in the 1960s. And that, that these two women, weirdly, they never knew each other, but they, I think they would have each thought the other one was kind of a badass oh. if they had the chance because they were both constantly pushing back on these boundaries that existed for women. And then also the case itself is insane. At one point, the prosecution is talking about their plans in an elevator. And it was such an interesting story because I could see this unfolding in my head, which was black female elevator operator. Okay. But of course, they don't see her at all. Right. <laughs> of course. And they're talking about their legal strategy <laughs> for how they're going to win this case. And that woman who, you know, is like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> then turns around and fills in Ms. Roundtree with all the details that she needs to know as she's trying to navigate her case. Wow. So then the, just the details of the case itself. I mean, it's... It's 1964, so Dovey can't even drink from the water fountains at the Damn. courthouse, and she's supposed to be trying to save this guy's life. And then the conspiracy theories. So after uh, Mary Pincho Meyer dies, it's the CIA swoops in and grabs her diary oh. because she'd been having an affair with JFK. What? What? Yes! It's the craziest. So it's like it's like there's a million and eight things happening in this in this podcast, and all of them are just crazy. So it's a really it's a great podcast. Okay, but uh, but it's but it's a a, a really crazy podcast. Both the, just legally, it's interesting. Yeah, just for these two women's stories, it's very bizarre. Like what really did happen to Mary Pincho Meyer, mm -hmm. and then just make sure you stay for the conspiracy theories because they're they're the facts upon which the conspiracy theories are built on, the mm -hmm. facts themselves are insane. Well, it feels like, it, this feels like a mini-series. This feels like, this feels like it has much potential in all arenas. It does, yeah, yes. I think it does. I really think it, it would be a great movie um, because you, you could never do it as a doc. There's just too many, you know, windy little pieces of it. But it would be, uh, it would be an amazing movie, I think. What happened to the diaries? The CIA grabbed it. They just, they have the, they... Well, so because she's having this affair with right. JFK, oh, and by the way, Ben Bradley of the Washington Post is the one who tells the story of this in his memoir. Doesn't report on it. <laughs> what? <Yes. laughs> oh my God. 
It's so messy. It's so messy. It's amazing. It's a great story. And it's a really interesting unsolved crime that has so many twists and turns. And so uh, I loved it as a first project because I had never done a podcast. And um, and we worked with a a team at um, at Luminary was kind of the, it airs on Luminary and Neon Hum was a group that I work with. And they were so good and so patient because I'm a, a fast talker. And I think on podcasts, you have to be like, and thoughtful you're driving in your car and I'm trying to have a thoughtful voice and wow so yeah so so they were very helpful to me it was a lot of fun to do I liked it I like true crime but I like it with history did you go down into that voice and did you did you slow it down I didn't I, I, I did no. like two seconds I can't keep it yeah no 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 this is a different version of me you've never yeah. <laughs> okay. so then she's walking along the no. oh I didn't oh, do that. I couldn't no. do that. But they were, it, but it is a different kind of storytelling, yeah, and uh, and writing. And so I really enjoyed it. It was a great learning experience for me. So we're going to try to do some others as well. The day that we are recording, you're also releasing your documentary into the world about the Seattle's response to the coronavirus. Yeah, it's called Outbreak, 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 the first response, Outbreak. and we focus on Seattle. We mm-hmm. were shooting in Seattle a story about homelessness in Seattle, where obviously in Seattle it's a huge problem. And then all of a sudden COVID-19 presents itself. And so we pivoted and started following the public health officials and homeless families as they try to figure out, you know, they're two to three times the, you know, high risk of Mm -hmm. general population. And what was the, what was the government, what was local government going to do to help protect the most vulnerable, homeless right. people, uh, people living in nursing homes. And as you know, the nursing home story in, in Seattle was devastating. Yes. So it ended up we were just kind of in the right place at the right time to tell an interesting story uh, about the nation's first response to coronavirus. So you were there. You were filming. That's, wow. Yeah, we, we had great local shooters. And I have to tell you, I mean, one of the things that we made very clear to everybody and you know, there are days when I'm shooting and I'm very, very brave and other days when I'm feeling very wussy and I'm a big fan of like, you know what, go with your gut. If, if today mm-hmm. is not the day to shoot, then never feel like someone's pressuring you into doing something. And we had right. a lot of things in place. Everything was shot from a distance. Mm-hmm. We really tried to make sure everyone stayed safe. At one point, the woman we were following, members of her team started getting sick. Ah. So we were always very worried about the people who were really, really in close contact. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a little bit scary. But but I, I guess I've always tried to be like, you know, go with your gut and sure. don't do anything that's risky. And also, you know, we know wearing a mask, social distancing, sure. gloves, hand sanitizer, all of those things really do make a difference. It has been very challenging. I mean, it's been challenging for us to shoot this show, so I assume that you're operating under the same kind of conditions. It's a very interesting way to be pulling together anything visual right now. Yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah, it was. It really was. And then, of course, you have, you know, as you get back video and you're doing drops and who gets it and how do you give it to the team. I mean, it was just, but they, they, really, it was the the folks who were, um, every single person who was involved I think, and has been interesting during coronavirus, mm-hmm. was just a hundred and giving one hundred and ninety percent. Like people were just really, really into the project, and so they were willing to just go above and beyond to do the project, which was amazing. Amazing. Well, I cannot wait to see it. It's great. It's really, it's a really good doc. Oh, that's great. Well, Soledad, this is it. Thank you. I'm so thanks for having me. This is so much fun. Oh, I'm such a big fan. So I this am is like such a huge fan I of yours. It. This is the silly part where where I am gonna 
gush at you a little bit and it's gonna be it's not I mean, gonna hold be on, too let me much. record this hold yeah. on let me make sure i'm recording <laughs> it really it's it's kind of like mother related just for if i could just take a take a little side journey i will say that you have four kids i have three and i have to say that when sometimes when i was really in the weeds and there were a lot of times where i thought i cannot do this i have three kids i cannot work like i don't have i don't have it in me to make this work right now. I was, you know, there were days where I was like Lady Macbeth all day because I wasn't sleeping for weeks at a time. And I would sometimes, I would channel you and I would think Soledad's oh, got- I love that. She's got four, look what she's doing. I think that I can do it. My mom had six. My mom passed away last year. She had six kids. And so she used to say to me when I would complain, like I'm overwhelmed, I'm exhausted, I can't do this. And she'd say, oh, Oh, right. Just four kids. Just four, right? huh? I mean, I had six, so <laughs> that was hard. But, but four kids, huh? Really? Four. <laughs> I was like, fine, I'll go do it. <laughs> but so much of it is, right, just getting through it, yes. right? I mean, you know, it's. I had a conversation with a girlfriend this morning about coronavirus, and I'm like, no one's supposed to shine. We're not supposed to shine. We're right. supposed to get through it. That's it. Do not aim for the A. <laughs> just get a yeah. passing grace. It's a pass-fail class, and we're all going to skip over it and pass That's by a right. hair. That's it. Being satisfactory is okay sometimes. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Well, I think you're great. I'm so thankful to you. And this was a great conversation. It was rollicking. I thought it lasted five minutes, but here we are. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, you guys. I thought that was amazing. I love her. I got gushy at the end, but I, that made me happy from start to finish. We're a pro gushy podcaster. Wow. Very, very gushy. Okay. We're going to do a little segment now called Real or Fake, where I read comments and then, and I have not read them before, and I will uh, take a guess whether they are real or fake comments. <laughs> I get, you know, varying degrees of love and hate out there. So let me see. I have not read these yet. Are you guys ready? Yeah, we want to get your reactions in real time. Oh, boy. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. You is, gotta Sam, read it. Uh, is Sam really that short and wide? With that jacket, she looks four feet tall and three feet wide. <laughs> I think that's real. Sadly, it's real. Sadly, it's real. Jesus. I'm sorry. Okay. Terrible. Blazers are for men. Maybe try showing a little skin next time and I might tune back in. I think that's fake. Yes. Oh. Okay. All right. Blazers are See, for there's... everyone. <laughs> Blazers are a, that... for... No one would ever say that. That was a more complimentary one, though. Yeah, that's true. Show a little more skim. <laughs> that's just my husband. Okay. I already knew about the fake news media, but you're fake comedy. If I want to hear a joke, I'll watch Jeff Dunham. Ooh. A Jeff Dunham reference feels like a deep cut. I think that's fake. No, yeah. someone, could, someone <laughs> could actually watch him for jokes. Mm. That could be could real. They? It's not, but it could be. I think what Sam's saying is that one was too clever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too clever. Okay. This is so cringy, even for Samantha B. And the mindless drones who watch this nonsense in the comments are even worse. We deserve the coronavirus. Oh, that feels real. You're getting really good and at this. It is. Is yeah. it real? I know. I thought some of these would stump you. Mm, this is that feels real. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it depends on the day whether my <laughs> my spidey senses can pick up the real versus fake. <laughs> okay, you can't get over the fact that libtard Hillary lost the election. America saw through her, and we see through you too. Hashtag MAGA. 
I think that might be real. That's fake. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. that's good that you've channeled someone's voice. <laughs> Samantha B is a witch who can perform resurrections. Confirmed. That's fake. <laughs> what? I know. It's so Why? good. It literally reads like a Donald Trump tweet. I like the confirmed at the end. <laughs> who would yeah, they've seen that? It. They've seen it happen. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so powerful okay well we, we, yeah that's a very unique perspective <laughs> i i was gonna say i would like to meet that person but i would not like to meet that person no but they're watching wanna. you they definitely you are watching keep your resurrections <laughs> a little more private my resurrections okay hope you like my podcast if you did let me know in the comments maybe we'll use them if you didn't please consider hate listening in the future seriously though please rate review and subscribe to this podcast and let me know who you think i should be talking to in the future what should i talk to them about or send me letters about your coronavirus adventures my producers will choose some lucky listener stories for me to read in our next episode tune in next week for another full release this podcast was produced by Adam Howard and Svia Baron Reinstein. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by Samantha B. That's me. Um, yeah. Did how did you feel about the questions? Did you feel like you had enough to work with, Samantha? They were very Samantha. good. Yeah, I don't know why that, like that. <laughs> that was so I want to extend your name. <laughs> I think because I was like reading your box as I was saying. <laughs> I want to be like, they were, they were great, Adamson. <laughs> That's when we found out that Adam is a robot. <laughs> Samantha.